0: Let's open our Bibles tonight. I'm going to ask you to go to 1 Corinthians this evening, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 10. Before we go to prayer, I just want to direct our attention to a helpful and I hope a challenging text that fits hand in glove with what we saw this past Sunday, really these last couple of Sundays in Genesis. I actually referenced one of the verses in this text, in the Sermon on Sunday, in passing. I didn't really stop and talk much about it, but I, I mentioned it. I thought we could spend a few minutes tonight here. I just want to begin by reading the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians 10. So verse 1 down through verse 14, and then look at a few thoughts here with you this evening. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved. Flee from idolatry. I think it's clear that this passage points back to the history of Old Testament Israel. There are analogies or allusions here that we all know well as we read down through it. I'm sure things jumped into your mind of the story of the the saints of old, the people of God, and those among them that weren't saints, that did not please God. In spite of all of God's blessings, and that's really what's painted out in the first four verses of the text, right? The blessing of God. They, they were fed and they were filled. They were satisfied with water from a rock that He provided for them. But in spite of all of His blessings, verse 5 spells out a problem among the people. It tells us that with most of them, God was not now, I, I got a question. When you think about the professing people of God, do you think in terms like these? Do, do you and I go here in our minds? Or would we tend to say with some of them, God is not pleased? I, I'm not sure that we tend to think in biblical terminology, and often we find our Lord talking about many And most. And we like to flip that scenario. We we think we're talking in terms of giving the benefit of the doubt. We, We think we're being optimistic and hopeful. My question is are we being honest? The text says that all of them, all of them, all of them, repeatedly in the first four verses. They all ate, they all drank, they all were blessed, they all were baptized, they all went, they all felt, they all received, they all knew. And with most of them, God was not pleased. That's so what's striking to me as I read texts in our Lord's ministry where he will say things like, many are on the road that leads to destruction, while few go through the narrow gate and stay on the narrow path that leads to life. We don't like those words, but they are often in the text of Scripture for us. And I think they're intended to sober us. I don't know about you, but I read a phrase like that in verse 5. With most of them, God was not pleased, and it really seems like a strange turn of events. If the first four verses are all about the way God blessed His people, and all of them got this, and all of them received that, and all of them experienced this, and all of them had that, it seems like a strange turn of events until you read in verse 6 what's actually going on. In verse 6, it makes clear that the whole point of this passage is to sound a warning to the professing people of God. And he actually sounds this warning. Verse number 6 was plain. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not, look at the language, desire evil as they did. That's the warning. That we might want the right things, not the wrong things. It's about desire. It addresses some of their acts, but it starts with the heart, right? We all do what we want. That's how we're wired. So, where does Paul go? He doesn't just talk about acts, deeds. He says, What do you want? Like, what do you want? Do you and I desire evil as they did, is the question he's asking. So Paul then is writing a passage to warn us about the danger of desiring evil or of having evil desires. That lead to a faithlessness toward God. In fact, we talked about it Sunday, Paul's warning. He was concerned that some of them that he wrote to would be deceived like Eve and prove to desert Jesus in time. This is the kinds of warnings the apostle writes. You find them in his epistles repeatedly. Hey, 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 don't just start well, finish well. So he said, don't just look to the external, thinking it all looks good right now, so who would really know? No. He says, what is in your heart? What's going on on the inside of you and of me? In fact, he goes on, the next verse is to describe several sins that flow directly out of the evil desires that are prone to plague our fallen and our sinful hearts with temptation, the kinds of things that pull our hearts away. He says it starts with a, with a desire, it starts with what's on the inside, but our evil desires lead to things, and he really gives us four things in the passage that it leads to. First of all, he tells us that our evil desires lead to spiritual infidelity, Spiritual infidelity. Verse 7 is really plain about this, where he simply says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so miss it, the people knew the true and living God of heaven. God had just rescued them from Egypt. He had led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. He was feeding them with manna and with quail. He was supplying them with water that came miraculously out of a rock. And even though all that was true and happening right before their eyes, they still abandoned this God, their God, For idols. Even as Moses was on the mountain. Receiving the law. In the midst of the thunders. And the lightnings. And the smoke. And the clouds. They were at the bottom of the mountain. Having a pagan orgy. Around a golden calf. They had formed. While God thundered on the mountain. Above them. This is what he's pointing to. The Bible is clear that they they simply wanted a God of their own making. One that they could fashion from their own imaginations with their own hands. One that would be what they wanted. Do what they wanted. Be at their beck and call. Be like the other nations. Not be quite so offensive as this one we serve. They wanted a God they could imagine. Imagine. Not a God who defies all imaginations because he is the one true creator who is ultimately incomprehensible in his greatness. And this is why Paul says to the New Testament church that he wrote, to whom he wrote, don't you be like them. Exchanging the knowledge of the true God Or something lesser, something that makes you more comfortable, something that's more in keeping with everybody around us likes and does and says and believes. What's he say to us? Don't be like them. The first thing he tells us is that our evil desires lead to spiritual infidelity. But secondly, he tells us that our evil desires eventually lead to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, like I said, hand in glove with what we've been studying on Sundays. Verse 8 says this plainly. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. I want you to think this through. Once a person has replaced the true God of the Bible with one in keeping with their own imagination. Nothing will prove off limits to them going forward. Once my God is whatever I want him to be, then I can do whatever I want to do. Once I've replaced the true God with an idol, I'm the sovereign. I do as I please. Nothing should stop me. It's important to remember the biblical description of, uh, of sinfulness and the, and, and the kind of sin. We saw it Sunday. It's in Genesis. What did God see around the flood? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He did what he wanted. Mankind did what he wanted. Just did as he pleased. And when this is the case, Man without restraint plunges headlong into wicked sin. We saw it in Romans 1 as we considered it on Sunday as well. What happens? They reject the knowledge of God and God gives them over. What? To the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When you reject the true God, it leads down this road. So he begins with the question of spiritual infidelity that results in sexual immorality. This is why Paul warns us in our text, don't indulge in the lusts of the flesh as they did. Don't do what they did. And he warned us, right? 23,000 of them died in a single day. It was that sobering to God, that serious to God, that sobering to the people. If we're not careful, we tend to presume upon the mercy and the grace of God. So this leads us to a third reality. We said our... Evil desires lead to spiritual infidelity. And secondly, our evil desires lead to sexual immorality. But the third thing our evil desires lead to is arrogant presumption. Arrogant presumption. In fact, the very next verse in our text, verse 9, says this. We must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. The phrase, put Christ to the test, communicates an arrogant attitude of presumption toward the Lord. Just listen to the original text as it describes the situation being alluded to in Numbers. That story in Numbers, it actually uses this language. I just want you to understand, when he says, they put him to the test, how did they do that? Here's the language, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became... Impatient on the way. God's not leading us fast enough to where we want to be. God's not giving us what we want quickly enough. He's not on our timetable. The people became impatient on the way. And so what do they do? The people spoke against God, and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What? What are they talking about? Bread given by God every day from heaven. This worthless food. Food. We hate it. The implication you're a worthless God. You give worthless gifts, you have a worthless plan for us. That's their impatience. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. I I, I don't know that you and I tend to think of impatience as that serious of a sin. Our frustration. Our being bothered by life are not getting what we want, when we want it, as quickly as we want it, as not as nice as we wanted it, or made uncomfortable, and therefore, what, do, do you hear their words come out of your mouth sometimes? I, I hear them come out of my mouth. Why did you lead us here? I could have come up with a better plan than this one. In fact, I had a better plan, God, but you led us a different way. You didn't give us what we wanted. And we're never so brazen, we're never so brash, we're never so bold, but we are just as sinful. He says they were impatient and they spoke against God. Many of us are impatient. We've just learned to bite our tongues. We still think it. We still feel it. We still respond with it. We just may not say it. Think of it. The all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, ever-faithful God who rules over the universe was leading them personally, specifically through the wilderness by by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and he was meeting every one of their needs. Their shoes and their clothing were not wearing out. They were not thirsty for there was a rock providing water for them. They were not hungry because there was bread for them every morning when the dew Was out. And they viewed all of that as worthlessness. We'd rather be slaves where we were, because at least we had vegetables. In fact, they actually, when they spoke, they spoke as though God's intent was the same heart as a murderer. Did you bring us out here to kill us? Wow. What blasphemy. And yet the same attitudes arise in our hearts and we shrug them off and keep going as if that's just Normal. It's understandable. We all feel that way at times. So it must be okay, right? Even though this was the God who was meeting their every need and leading and guiding their every step, they grew impatient with him. And they began to despise his gracious and abundant provision. It's not good enough. I want more. I want better. Maybe I just want different, but I want and you're not giving me what I want. Evil desires Friends, that that we're describing here is the epitome of arrogant presumption. If that's not it, I don't know what is. But it's exactly what Paul describes. And once again, Paul would instruct us with these words, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Our evil desires lead to spiritual infidelity. Our evil desires lead to sexual immorality. Our evil desires lead to arrogant presumption. There's a fourth thing we see in the text, and it's this. Our evil desires lead to thankless grumbling. Thankless grumbling. Verse 10 was plain when it said, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Don't grumble like they did. I think all of us are well aware of the fact that all through their wilderness wanderings the children of Israel were marked by a grumbling spirit. I mean it's just it's all all over the text. I mean every time they it seems like they paused, every time they breathed, what came out next was grumbling. They needed to wet their whistle with this miraculously provided water so that they could figure out a way to, to, to speak their grumbling, right? Simply put, we could say it this way, they were just not thankful for the provision that God had made for them. It was not enough for them. They weren't grateful. And the text tells us that for their grumbling, God destroyed them. For their grumbling. Throughout their journey, many of them were destroyed by God for that grumbling. And finally, we know from the Old Testament that all but a handful of those in the the generation rescued by God from Egypt were destroyed by God in the wilderness rather than being permitted to enter the land of promise. Only a very few of those originally rescued actually entered the land. He destroyed a whole generation. And once again, Paul makes it plain. What's he say? Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Now, I must confess that if we're not careful, a list like this can begin to discourage us. <laughs> right? <laughs> I read a list like this and I'm thinking, man, oh, I see a little bit of, or maybe a lot of each of these in various ways show up in my thinking, in my life, in my home. It can show up in our ministry. Hmm. We read the next couple of verses that reiterate this poor example of the children of Israel and the warning that's written to us. I mean, it just seems like it just keeps adding to it. Verses 11 and 12, what does it say? Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, right? This is for us on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Wow, that's, that's a warning. That's a warning, right? Because here's the thing. I would hope that we would hear those warnings that we just read and all of us would say what I just said. Whoa, I see too much of that in me. I, I see how I could so easily go down those same roads they did. That's why he says don't. But here's what, is, what, what, what is, we're tempted to think. <laughs> I would never. I would never think like that. I, I never struggle with those things. I never do that kind of thing. I never talk like that. I never have those kind of thoughts in my heart. I never desire those kinds of things. No, I'm a good Christian, right? I'm faithful and I read my Bible and I go to services and I give in offerings and the rest of the time is mine, so we're all good. Like, I got it covered. And what does he say? No, let anyone who thinks he stands, watch out. Watch out. Watch out lest you fall, lest I fall. Yeah, I mean, we, we would do this, every one of us, but for the grace of God, right? So he warns us. So now this list of four things that we can take to heart or not, which now he's doubled down and he's like, no, 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 you don't just get to ignore this. You don't just get to like, oh, no, it's not me. He says, no, no, if you think this isn't you, you're the one I'm preaching to. If you think this isn't talking about you, wake up, take your head out of the sand, look firmly in the mirror of God's word and take a long look and do something about it. If you think you stand... You're confident and you're st- I don't do any of that stuff. I never think like that toward my God. Watch out. A fall is coming for you. So Paul says. We read all of this and we ask ourselves if they failed so miserably with these temptations, then who am I to think I'll do any better? I mean, I see the pull of my heart. I know the temptation. I I, I know when the grumbling heart rises. I I know when my thanklessness shows up. I know how prone I am to these. If If they struggle with all of that, and they were watching those miracles every day of their lives, who am I to think that I can not follow in their footsteps? That I could have victory when they didn't? Friends, we cannot afford to miss the promise that is recorded in this context. I don't know that this is the context most of us think this verse was found in. We know this verse. We quote this verse. We've been teaching it to our kids since they were little. But do we realize where it's found? The very next verse after, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. This is the promise of God. No temptation. Has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. If you and I aren't careful, we will read a text like this one and we will, we will hear the warning of Paul against faithlessness and we will, we will think something like this. I know that's what they did. I know that's what they struggled with. But I am faithful. I'm faithful. I've made up my mind. I've prayed the prayer. I've got a big Bible, right? I've got a good church. I'm faithful. Does Paul point to your faithfulness or mine as our confidence When this kind of stuff shows up, not in the least, what does he say? God is faithful. God is faithful. Your success, your victory and mine is not rooted in how good you are at this Christian life thing, how good I am at all this. Our success is rooted in the faithfulness of our God. And he, as the faithful God, knows our limits. And he has not left us to ourselves. He makes a way of escape when temptation comes. We don't have to grumble. We don't have to fume and fuss. We don't have to bow before the idols of our own making. We don't have to give in to the indulgences of our flesh. Because God is faithful. And he will not let us be tempted. Beyond the ability he gives by his grace and his word has already spoken. Don't walk this path. So what do we do? We just obey him. We just do what he's already said. Friends, our God has not left us alone in the face of temptations to sin. How lonely does it feel to be in temptation? Doesn't it feel lonely? Am I the only one who's ever felt the loneliness of temptation? I I mean, loneliness feels like the most, or temptation feels like the loneliest place on earth. I'm all alone in this. I, I, I don't have strength. I don't have power. I don't know what to do. I can't say no. No, I gotta say this because I'm angry. I gotta I gotta act this way because, because it's just how I am. If you just knew my parents or the family I grew up in, I don't have any choice, I gotta, I gotta be like this. I feel so lonely. What does he say? In temptation, you are not alone. God is faithful. My friends, this is a glorious promise. A far too often overlooked promise by the people of God. We need to ask a question. How how are we to respond to the promise? He's made a way to escape. He's made a way to escape. He's, he's spoken His Word. He's told us the path to walk. How are we to respond to this? Can, can we just sit back and relax, knowing that God's going to make a way of escape from temptation? So I don't need to think. I don't need to do anything. I just need to let go and let God. Is that, is that what He's telling us to do here? Because that's what a lot of professing Christians want to act like. If He's faithful and He'll make a way of escape, I don't have to do anything. I just keep on living my life, doing my thing, making room. Acting how I please. If God's gonna rescue me, God's gonna rescue me. And if he doesn't, it's his fault, not mine, right? That's the way people tend to read a verse like this. Or is there more to it than that? I want you to remember that there's one more verse in the passage we read. We didn't just read 13 verses to start with, right? We read 14. And I want you to look at verse 14 and I want you to see what it tells us. God has made a way of escape. So you would think if we're supposed to just let go and let God, the next verse would say, then let him be God and let him be your escape, right? But that's not what he says next. The next word is therefore. Therefore. Because all of this is true, because God is faithful in the midst of your temptation, because you're prone to all the same stuff that they were, because you're made of the same flesh that they were. Because God is faithful and will make a way of escape. How do you respond? Next verse. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, run from it. Don't just sit there. Don't just keep walking on that path. Don't just keep bowing down and making offerings at that altar. Don't keep making sacrifices to your own flesh. Don't keep making excuses and justifications. This is just how I am. No, we run in the opposite direction. From the path they walked. We actually do what he said he is empowering us to do. Don't miss this. On the basis of everything that he has just written, the warnings and the promise, right? We had warnings and then a promise. On the basis of all that he's just written, the warnings and the promise, Paul does not call us to passivity. He commands us to flee. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, get up, get out, get on your running shoes, and take off. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. Now think, think it through. I, I was wrestling with this as I was getting ready for tonight. He, he could have, he could have commanded us to flee from any or all of the temptations. Right? He just named four big temptations. He could have named any of them. He could have called us to flee from immorality. He does in other places. He doesn't here. He could have called us to flee from presumption. He could have called us to flee from grumbling. But he calls us to flee from idolatry. Idolatry. Seems as if idolatry is the root issue here. In other words, he seems to be saying this. Spiritual infidelity leads to sexual immorality. It leads to arrogant presumption. It leads to thankless grumbling. But the issue is actually at the root. is an unbelief in the God and a bowing to another another God an idol of my own making we're all worshipers we all worship something and when we don't worship him we ultimately worship something else This, I think, is why Paul commands us to flee from idolatry. Simply put, we flee from idolatry, friends, by running to our God. See, we think that we flee from idolatry by distracting ourselves with something else, right? That's how we often fight temptation. I'm tempted to do this, so let me just distract myself with something else that's maybe more innocuous than what I was going to do or say. So we maybe have some form, even sadly, of of harming, whether it be pinching ourselves every time we're tempted to say something. And and, and that's going to be my reminder. That's how I'm going to fight temptation. I'm going to pinch myself every time. So I hurt myself so that I won't hurt somebody else with words. So I'm I'm going to hurt myself so I don't do that, right? addicted to pornography decides, well, I'm just gonna give myself over to video games instead. It's not as sinful, right? So I'm gonna just I'm gonna play video games so I don't I don't indulge the flesh over here. So I'll exchange I'll exchange laziness for immorality. As if that's a solution to a sin problem. What does he say? No. Flee idolatry. That means run to God. At the end of the day, we can flee from temptation because the text tells us that our gracious and faithful God has made this way of escape for us. He has given us his grace. He has given us his mercy. He has provided for us life and breath and everything. My question for us would be this. Are we honest in our own minds and hearts about what we're up against in a life filled with temptation? And rather than being beaten down and overwhelmed and feeling a little more lonely in our temptation than we Already felt before we came in here. I want us to leave feeling bolstered, strengthened, encouraged because we've been reminded we are not alone when we are tempted. God is faithful. Tonight's a prayer meeting. We're going to pray. May I remind you how our Lord taught us to pray? In a prayer, I believe that He intended to be prayed regularly, at least in a format, because in that prayer, that model prayer He gave us, He said, give us this day our... What kind of bread? Did He intend for you to pray that more than once? How about daily at least? In that same model prayer, what did He say to pray? And lead us... Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Question, do you think he intended us to pray that more than once? Absolutely. So tonight as we pray, could I, could I ask you to, to pray with me? And let us pray for each other that we will, by His grace, run to Him in prayer and seek His grace and His help and His mercy in our times of need. And may we walk through this life knowing the truth of temptation, but knowing our God is the one faithful when we are tempted. Therefore, we do not need to give in to temptation, but run to him in our temptation. That he might be exalted. He might be glorified. And he might work for our good. So tonight, let's pray like that. All right?